Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, welcome to New Vintage Church. We're here to worship the Lord today. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and get it open to Romans chapter 7. We're charting the course through uh, Romans chapters 1 through 8, and we love God's Word here and invite you uh, to experience it with us this morning. If you join us online, welcome as well. Today, um, we're talking, this is kind of a a three-parter, if you will, part two of a three-parter on sin and righteousness uh, that Paul gives us within Romans 1 to 8. And um, as we kind of venture out there, I want to take you back in time to the world of Nicholas Copernicus. Those of you who uh, remember this unit in school or have had it recently, he was the fella that helped everybody understand that we don't orbit around the earth uh, we are on earth and we orbit here on earth around the sun. And at the time, everybody thought for a very long time, thanks to uh, the Ptolemaic folk, uh, Ptolemy himself, that said, okay, everything we think revolves around the earth, that there was something that Copernicus understood that said, okay, you know, uh, it feels like we're a little small uh, for that. And it feels like, like there's something bigger out there. And in the same way, when you come to realms of the spirit, there are people who think that everything really does revolve, say, around them, uh, or their life actually revolves around something smaller than the gospel or smaller than Jesus Christ. And what Paul offers us is a spiritual Copernican revolution, if you will, to simply say, listen, everything actually revolves around the gospel. What's the gospel? It's that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So our sins have been atoned for, but even more than that, we've been given the gift of the Spirit of God that allows us to continue to live sanctified lives that grow in Christ and, and are lived out with a power that's uncommon, unparalleled, because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Nevertheless, we have this challenge. You may have already felt it today. If not, it may be later today or maybe tomorrow or maybe the day after that. My guess is you've probably already had one of these this morning, an occasion where your sin or your sinfulness pops up again, and it raises the question, okay, if I've experienced the forgiveness of my sins and if God is in fact strong inside me and within me, then why do I still sin? Why am I still tempted all the time? Why isn't my character kind of like in the blink of an eye just transformed from one way of being uh, to another? Isn't that what God promised me? Well, we're going to talk about that today. Paul is very sympathetic to us sinners. He sees himself as one of us. And he tries to help us understand that there in the temptation of it all and there in the sinfulness of it all is actually uh, there are some good things in the midst of it. Not the sin itself, but the struggle. That temptation tells us something about what's going on inside of us and some other things. Uh, so this morning... We're going to look at questions of temptation and sin, especially the question, uh, if my old self is gone, then why does he keep popping back up again? Like some evil jack-in-the-box at the wrong time, all of a sudden, boom, here he is, the old Tim. We have a way of trying to make excuses for why that happens, and we often will say it's God's fault, or it's the law's fault. So when we're doing these things and we're, we're involved in sin, what do we end up doing? What's going on, Dan? Hey, bud. It's all right. Your chair's waiting for you. You get a tardy slip? Yeah, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. 
So, all right, so you've got the issue of sin. Eve, for instance, is kind of confused by the devil. He comes in and he says, the problem really is the rule. Did God really tell you not to eat that? Uh, And so the question there really is, he tries to make it about God. God's really the bad guy here. This morning, there's a little mini mart in the neighborhood that I live in, and I went by that place to uh, get some items to help me get through Sunday that I always do. So there might have been energy drinks involved or other items. And I went there, and it was like cop central. There were like six SUVs and motorcycles of cops sitting right outside the mini mart. So after I got past the fact that they probably weren't looking for me, I got inside, and I said hi, and we greeted everybody and everything and hooked it up a little bit, and then they took off and left, and I was still waiting behind them in line, so I I left a little bit later. And the whole drive here, they were parked in different little speed traps all around the city, and I thought to myself, how dare they? You know, we, we had a bond. We had a, there was a connection here. And I found myself going, you know, why would they, if they're good people, why would, why would they really do that? They're here to trip people up. They're here to, um, you know, make everybody's lives miserable. And I was running a little late and I was trying to speed. They were in my way. And so the problem then was the cops or the law. It was not that I waited too late to leave the house. It was, they were the problem. It was the law that was the problem. The cops were the problem. You know, if the Mini Mart had checked me out faster. You know, if the cops hadn't been there at the Mini Mart clogging up the cash register, I could have been in and out of there faster. Anybody but myself. Right? That's how sin works. Their fault. His fault. The law's fault. That's why in our society what we tend to do is if people are totally inept at obeying a particular law, we just make it legal. Eventually. The law gives way. We kind of get rid of it. But the standard of God's righteousness is different. It's eternal. It sticks. So what Paul's going to say is, no, the law's not bad. The law's good. I'm bad. The law's good. And as chapter 7 opens, this is exactly what he says. This is Romans 7, chapter 14. We know the law is spiritual, he says, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Well, then what am I supposed to do? If it isn't the law's fault and I can't seem to put my old self to death, what exactly am I supposed to do? Well, he has a response for that as well. This is Romans 7, verses 15 to 20. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Well, you ever been there? What did I just do? Why did I do that? Okay. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I don't do what I don't want, now wait. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Translation is basically the way that you feel a lot of the time. What is the matter with me? Like, I don't, that's not who I am. That's not what I want to do. Why, why do I keep doing all the stuff that I don't want to do? And then when I go ahead and I say, hey, I want to do this, then I don't do that. What am I supposed to do here? He keeps challenging me to 
to be righteous. And I want to be righteous, but I can't be righteous. And then over here, you got all the unrighteousness and all the stuff I'm supposed to be saved from, and I can't seem to stay away from that. What is going on? I'm their mom. How can I do that? I'm their dad. How can I do that? I'm her husband. How can I do that? I am his wife. How can I do that? I, I had been so much better at not exploding, and then there I go, kaboom. I'd been sober for 15 years and fell off the wagon. How could I do that? I was doing so well. How did it happen? That feeling of disillusionment that you get. That's one of the things that lets you know, I'm going to suggest to you this morning, that lets you know you're actually spiritually alive. That's what Paul suggests to us. Now, the sin's not good. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the struggle you feel, the conscience you feel, okay, that's a sign that there's good in here and that is actually resisting the evil that's attacking. It's like when you start running just a slight fever, you know your body's fighting something, right? Okay, there are germs, I've got them in there, my body's trying to knock this out in its infancy. That's how you know you have an immune system. And so in the realm of the spirit, one of the things that I think is extremely dangerous is when you get to that point where you don't have a conscience anymore. You sin with impunity, as Paul will say in the pastoral epistles. They, their consciences were seared as with a hot iron, uh, like dead skin. That's what their, con- their consciences are like. They just don't feel anything anymore. There's no remorse. They just run over people, abuse people, steal, uh, rob, kill, whatever, and it's really just not that big of a deal. They don't really feel anything. The struggle you see in Paul is a sign of a battle. That feeling of disillusionment that he has is a sign that the Holy Spirit is actually alive in him. C.S. Lewis talks about the difficulty of resisting temptation and the tension between the new man and the old man in mere Christianity, he writes this. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, Lewis writes, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us unless we try to fight it. Uh, I'm a beach kid by birth and learned the hard way about rip currents. Now I can spot them. Now I know what to do. I had three daughters, and we really wanted our kids to all grow up to be really good swimmers. Anna was the first. She's an absolute beast in the pool or in the ocean. Junior lifeguards all the way through, water polo player. I mean, she can swim. Kid's a great swimmer, but she has a hard head. That's the problem. So because she's a good swimmer, she's not very much afraid of rip currents because she feels proficient unto herself. Well, the way that you know to respect the ocean is the ocean spanks you good. 
and you understand that the ocean is bigger and stronger and will punish you, if you get out of line and you disrespect the ocean, the ocean will teach it to you. You get caught in a rib current once or twice. I mean, a really good one. That will teach you to respect rib currents. A lot of people don't, they don't think it's a big deal. They'll see the, you know, the black ball on the flag or whatever and just go on out anyway. Even if they can see it or whatever, it doesn't look that bad. Rib currents, after all, even the good ones, can only go about five miles an hour, pulling you offshore. And you really don't know you're even in one a lot of the time until the lifeguard station is now a tiny dot on your screen, whereas it used to be nice and large before. And they think five miles an hour, that's no big deal. Do you know that's the speed of an Olympic swimmer in a swimming pool? That pulls you out, pulls you out, pulls you out. And you know how strong it is if you try to fight it. If you try to swim back directly against it, good luck. If it's strong, you, you don't have a chance of getting back that way. You're supposed to swim, just so you know, parallel to the shore. Swim out of it sideways. But the way you learn how strong they are is to push against it. That's what Lewis is saying. People who don't try to resist, people who don't try to push against sin, people who don't try to change, that's a sign of spiritual death in, inside them. But that struggle, what you see in the heart of Paul saying, man, I wish I could live the right way, but I can't because everything I don't want to do, I keep doing that. And then everything else, you know, the stuff that, 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 that I do want to do, I can't even, you know, do that. I mean, the fact that he cares, the, the fact that I care or you care, okay, is not a sign necessarily of weakness or spiritual death. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit inside of us is actually engaged in a battle. I have a very long time, multiple decades under my belt now of sitting next to people on airplanes and having them find out what I do and then using that as a armchair confessional for the remainder of the flight. So we'll sit there and they often will say to me something like, as they're confessing all of their sin, something like this, I know you don't deal with this, but really? I don't. Now, what they mean is, I'd hope, something like, you probably do, but you don't succumb to it. That's the truth. Or you try not to. But there's an idea that the more righteous you get, the less tempted you become. Not so. In fact, a lack of temptation can mean Satan doesn't even want to mess with you. You're already his. You know who was tempted? Jesus. In every way as we were, the text says, but was without sin. So this whole thing about just, oh, I'm, you know, uh, I don't understand why I'm being tempted and da-da-da-da, that, that, get that out of your mind. It's his struggle and ours. Having a conscience that says, I want to live a godly life. I want to do the right thing. I want to imitate Jesus in everything that I do. I'm just frustrated and sad and upset that I can't. Right? Isn't that, isn't that uh, a better heart than somebody who's just like, eh, like we talked about last week, the, hey, nobody's perfect guy or gal. I remember Rudy Haygood once back when he was here, he, he's, he was preaching a sermon on that text and he said, nobody thought you were perfect. So who are you talking to? <laughs> I go, that's exactly right. Are you the first person that realizes you're not perfect? I mean, everybody else knows already. 
So shrugging our shoulders isn't the right response. This is the right response. What you see in Paul, there, there's a, a frustration born of conscience, of the Spirit's activity in your life that lets you know what I did there was wrong. And I don't, I don't want to do that. So I, I want to get down to the bottom of why I keep doing that, because I don't want to do that. And over here's a bunch of stuff that I want to do, but I'm not doing it. What is that about? Have you ever had the experience of trying to do what's right and failing? Okay, maybe not in the last 10 minutes, but you will. So will I. It's the human condition. This again, sisters and brothers, is where the gospel makes all the difference. Some Christians have come to believe that when one becomes a Christian, one just stops being tempted. One stops sinning. But in fact, there are some and there's some who actually look when somebody's about to be baptized or become a Christian, they're, they're like, hey, you know what? Um, and I think parents do this with their kids a lot because they know what a knucklehead their kid is around the house. Kid says that they want to come to Christ and the parent says, well, you need to do this and this and this first. Get your life together first, then come to Christ. Stop doing this, then come to Christ. So that shows me you're serious. I think that's thoroughly unbiblical, sisters and brothers, because the power source for living righteously comes from the gospel. So if we say to people, no, get perfect before you come to Christ, that's missing the point. The question of becoming a Christian is really, what do you make of Jesus? And if you're ready to make him Lord of your life, then you're ready to become a Christian. But understand, when you make him Lord of your life, that means you're saying, I'm making you the center of everything. It is a Copernican revolution of the soul. He's at the center. And if I'm dating somebody else, guess what, baby? You ain't my son. You might be my moon, not the sun. Jesus is at the middle. He's at the center. All right? And if, and if that significant other can't embrace that, move on. Move on. Jesus doesn't want to be a moon. He wants to be the sun. He's got to be the center. Then there, from that point, then you now at your spiritual death and resurrection, you now become a Christian. Your sins are atoned for. The gift of the Holy Spirit is now moving inside of you, and now you're fighting against sin, whereas before, you just kind of lay down and let it run over you. You know, you, you, you're like French. You're like, I surrender before anything even happened. Sorry for any Frenchman in the room, I guess. But... Uh, you know, we, you didn't stay and fight. You didn't care. You didn't care. But now there's something inside you that says, I don't, I don't like what I'm doing. I know God's got something better for me out there. I know that there's a way of life to which I'm called that I'm not, in, I'm not, I'm not rising to right now. What is it that's going on? Laying out his... Uh, his disillusionment with his own behavior, Paul then talks a bit about giving in to temptation, but he does it in light of the gospel. I know what to do, but I can't do it. And then he says uh, in 7.16, he says, I know what to do, but lack the ability to carry it out. Now, let me pause here and just go, having read other things of Paul, Philippians 4, for instance, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Where's that guy? 
This guy's like, I, I know what I want to do, but I lack the ability to carry it out. And then in Philippians, he's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, the answer is in the context a little bit, but then there are times where you are walking in the boldness and the victory that you just had. And then there are times where the tire tracks of the devil are firmly up and down your body. And you tried, but you got out in the street and got run over. And so the question then becomes, all right, now what? Do I, do I shrink up and go, oh, bless my heart. I'll never get there. I'll never be there. I'm never going to kick this habit. I'm never going to uh, deal with this sin. See, Paul doesn't live under the illusion that he'll never sin again. Paul did. Moses did. David. Joseph. Abraham. You. Me? Yeah. All right, so it's separated in two camps, the sin and the temptation. Two quick things on temptation. Two truths from the Bible. Temptation is not sin. That's number one. It's not the same. Now, I want to differentiate those, okay? What I mean by this is not, you can sin in your mind and in your heart. Jesus talks about this with regards to lust in the Sermon on the Mount. You look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's not one of these things where it's like, well, you know what, I, I admire the painting on the wall, but just didn't touch it. None of that creepy stuff. Nope. You can sin here and in here too. It's not just what you do physically with your hands and feet. All right. But there is a difference between temptation and sin itself. And in fact, spiritual warfare against us is often a sign of evil's battle against God's good. I think sometimes it creeps us out when we feel tempted. And we think to ourselves, you know, if I was more righteous, maybe I wouldn't be tempted. And for some, a lack of temptation might be because they are so well aligned with sin and so out of touch with the will of Jesus that Satan really isn't bothering with them much because they remain captive. There are ways that we can bring it on to ourselves because we like to play around with it or mess around with it or whatever, which really then makes it sin. But temptation is not necessarily a sign of impurity of heart, and we know this because Jesus himself was tempted and yet was sinless. Hebrews 4.15, text of the day. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. If you are tempted and, and overcome it by the power of God, he's given you victory over sin. Number two, this is the one we, we often don't acknowledge, but there is no unbearable temptation. There's not. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, how do we find the way of escape? Most of us know where the way of escape is. We just ignore it. You're driving by the casino, 
You heard, you heard the little voice inside you say, keep driving, dude, keep driving. You didn't. There was one way of escape. Parked in the parking lot, little boy said, don't go in. Do not open that car door. You open the car door. Leave your wallet in the car if you're going in. It said, you didn't do that either. You went in, blew your paycheck. Came back out frustrated that God had allowed you to endure such an irresistible temptation. Hmm. Somebody once said, a hypocrite is somebody who complains there's too much sex and violence on their DVD player. We're like that, right? We, we don't take the way of escape because we're not necessarily looking for the way. We're looking for the way to escape accountability is what we're looking for. And that's what we never find. So in my prolific life of sin over the course of time, what I have found is that temptation comes my way the more, the closer to God I am, the more temptation finds me. Uh, I will tell our staff with great regularity here at NBC, we have a little, a little saying, stay blessable. Stay blessable. What does that mean? doesn't mean you can be perfect. It means don't live your life in such a way. Don't do something in your ministry or let something grow in your heart that's going to make us unblessable to God. So if, if you're caught up in sin or whatever, the time to confess and repent is nigh. And if there's not, it's just a reminder we use, right? Now, again, if you're not in tune with the gospel, then sinning is terrifying. Imagine going through your life thinking, if I ever sin again in any way, shape, or form, it's like shoots and ladders, and the floor will drop out, and into hell I go. You don't tip enough at your local restaurant, it's all over for you. Uh, you know, you, 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 know you, you, you do something that, that's a little bit out of, out of kilter, then all of a sudden, hey, you know what, my, my eternity is in jeopardy, God is done with me. See, that's why you have to be anchored firmly in the gospel. Because one says... My best is being saved by the power of the gospel and then God and I partnering together with him in the lead to allow the Holy Spirit's power to break loose in my life. The other says, well, it's my effort plus Jesus equals salvation. That's no, too weak. It's Jesus only, not you and your best effort plus Jesus. He doesn't need your help, okay? So there's a big difference in how you approach sin and righteousness and whether it begins and ends with you or whether it begins and ends with God. So how do we find the way of escape? Paul will answer us in chapter 8. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that all next week. But here's another kind of quick one. The Bible can be used to either uh, tempt you, as Satan does to Jesus in Luke 4. Remember, he's out. He's been 40 days without food. And here comes Satan with some warm bread. I mean, to this day, if you're hungry, is anything better than warm bread? I mean, like those of you who are trying to like no carb or low carb, isn't that the most miserable part of the entire diet? Like you were doing fine until you got real hungry and then somebody, you went to some Italian place where they make ridiculous bread and out it came 
and you've already ordered the appetizers. But in the three years from the time that they bring the bread till the appetizers get there, is that not brutal? You can just feel every cell screaming, feed me the bread, right? So there he is, Satan shows up with his warm bread. And then Jesus responds and he says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Scripture used to tempt because it's twisted. And then scripture used to combat it because in scripture, from the mouth of God, that's where the words of life are. So, what do we do when we give in to temptation? Paul would suggest when we fail, we repent, we fall on God's grace, even in our sin, because it remains still about the gospel. Romans 7, 21 to 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of my God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there's a lot in there. Christians are set free from sin's dominion by the blood of Christ. Christians have their sins atoned for by the blood of Christ. Christians battle sin by the power of Christ. That's where he's going next in chapter 8. And in the end, it is always still the grace of God that delivers us from sin's power. Whether it's the, the, the need for the atonement for that sin or whether it's the power to overcome the sin on a daily basis. In the end, it is still and always will be God's grace that delivers us daily from sin's power. We can't save ourselves. And so it's okay for us to say, along with Paul, wretched people that we are, who will save us from these bodies of death? And then to say the punchline, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's still about the gospel. Again, it's not Jesus plus my best equals salvation. It's Jesus equals salvation, and salvation provides my best through the power of God's Spirit. My best is God's spirit living in me because the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world in that his divine power has given me everything I need for life and godliness through our, the power of him who called me by his own glory and goodness. There's power there in the spirit of God. Unmentionable almost, uh, unlimited, unfathomable power for me to learn to become the man that God believes I can be, the one he created me to be. It's the gospel that saves us and the gospel that saves me from temptation, giving in to temptation and the gospel that redeems my sin on Monday. It does transform us instantly when we come to Christ. It does, but it also transforms us day by day. Bono, U2 lead singer, he wrote this of his own experience. He said, your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships saved where both parties kind of let go and let God. But it wasn't like that for me, he writes. For all that I was lost and now I'm found, it's probably more accurate for me to say I was really lost and I'm a little less so at the moment. 
and then a little less and a little less again. To me, that's what the spiritual life is like, the slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years, though, and it is not over yet. So some people are like that. Some people do. I've watched some of these miraculous turnarounds where it is almost instant, and it seems like somebody just breaks out of everything that held them hostage, and they're turned around, and they, and they charge forth. But I will tell you that is the exception. For most of us, when Paul talks about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, this is our spiritual act of worship. He's talking about a daily re-offering of ourselves, and we will try with great dexterity to get off the altar and go do our own thing again, but we have to keep putting ourselves back and laying ourselves back on the altar so that we are sacrificed afresh on a daily basis. So we don't go on sinning that grace may increase. We don't give up. We don't lower God's standard or blame my sin on God's standard. The solution again is to return to the gospel. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who, is in every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw nearer to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what we're going to do right now as we gather around the table of the Lord. Uh, we take communion every week here at New Village Church. And uh, you should have got the elements when you walked in. If you didn't and you would like some, go ahead and... Uh, raise your hand and we'll get them to you. Just like this, we'll have people walking around with baskets. We've got a few over here on this side. Together, as we gather around the table, we say thanks be to God for what he has done for us in Christ. We remember Jesus now with bread and cup, which represents his body and blood. Let us pray. Father, for Jesus, our high priest, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who was tempted in every respect, just as we are, yet was without sin, Father, we remember him now. And we draw near with confidence to your gracious throne to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need. We pray this now in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.